Hey, I'm Asher. And I'm Jackson. And what you're about to listen to is strictly confidential. Hey, Asher, how's your week been? Listen, man, I'm tired, but I'm coming in hot because I got something that's got me steamed. And we can talk about your thing first if you want, or if you want to just let me get this off my chest, we can do it first. Let's just dive right in. Let's see. Let's see. Tell me what you got. Okay, listen. Tell me what you got swinging around. There has throughout my life been this deep-seated hatred of calendars. I've always hated calendars and people who use them. Why does this piece of flat wood with squares on it think it can tell me what to do? Uh, except there has been a character development in my life because recently, my professional life, uh, it presented me with an ultimatum, which was organize or run away to the nearest forest and see how well I get along in the wilderness and surviving there. Uh, so shelter, not a problem. I'm great at catching sticks. They are not very fast. But uh, food, I couldn't figure out. So organize it is. And I'm upset that these calendars, these dumb pieces of paper, are so useful. I'm angry that I've got my life together, and I'm so much more productive because of it. And I, it's, why does my chimp brain, I already have what I need to do that day. I already have it in the order that I'm going to do it. I already know how long each thing is going to take. But then when I put it on a calendar, suddenly I'm capable of doing all of it. So are you using a paper one? Like an old-fashioned uh, businessman? Or are I'm actually you doing like... a little bit of both. Uh, yeah. I have a paper one in front of me for like personal stuff and for work stuff. I have a digital calendar. And it's super useful. And I'm... I, I don't know. I'm excited because work has been a lot better because of it. But I can't shake the feeling that like my younger self is deeply disappointed. I think there are some progressional leaps like that that we have to make as human beings that we can step away from childhood in and be okay and be a better human being. That being said, I still hate calendars. I <laughs> know. Uh, they're the and worst. For me, it was always like a professor or a high school teacher would tell me, hey, you should get a calendar to catalog all of your homework. And I would get one every school year. And by and week one, I would think, oh, yeah, I'm going to use this and I'm going to use it good. Week two, I would think I- I'm writing down just the kind of the bare minimum here. Week three, I would think my brain works good enough. <laughs> See that this isn't I wasn't excited to try it out. I wasn't in a position where I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get my I'm going to get my life together. This was a pure survival tactic. I was like, I got to try something or I'm not making it out of here. And then it just clicked, and it's been very useful. So, life hack, calendars, but uh, I still would rather hold things in my leaky brain. Yeah, and so I'm doing a lot of freelance right now, which is an odd flex, but I, like, I've been doing it and kind of just keeping track of all of my stuff in a journal. Like, it's not even a, it's not even a planner or a calendar or anything. It's just a journal. And I will keep track of notes and stuff on each project that I'm doing there and like write 
okay, this project needs to have these things done. This is kind of the timeline for it. And I had been doing that for a long time, but I recently started using, by recently, probably six months ago, but I've started using Dropbox Paper for all of those needs. And Not a sponsor, but it could be. And to be honest, keeping myself organized is kind of awesome. Yeah, so I mean, effect, you're, you're experiencing the effects that, are desired when you're using a calendar. You're just doing it in your own way. So I respect that. We you would be you would probably be more excited to use a calendar if it made more sense. Like we should just switch over from the Gregorian calendar to the lunar calendar. And speaking of the lunar calendar, uh? <laughs> today's topic that we're talking about is Project A119. And I very much wanted to title this something along the lines of the Doctor Strange Love title, which is Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying in Love of the Bomb, which yes. is the 1964 movie. That so, apparently neither one of us has seen. So I wanted to title this episode something like Project A1 A119 or How America Wanted to Blow Up the Moon. Oh, okay. So this whole this whole project is so interesting, and it's a little different than what we usually talk about because it's not fake or it's not supposed or anything it is true okay <laughs> it's not america's on that dr eggman shit yeah it's it feels like a like dr doofenshmirtz deciding that he wants the tri-state area to be brighter at night so he's gonna blow up the moon <laughs> it's something like that and so it's a top secret plan developed in 1958 by the united states air force which already is funny because it's not even NASA that's doing it. It's the United States Air Force that decides, you know what? We could fly in the sky. I bet we could shoot the moon. <laughs> well, I mean, it fits It fits the, the movie stereotype, right? Where the army comes in and they're like, we're going to blast that thing to hell. And then you have the nerdy scientist in the, in the coat that's just like, mm, actually, they'll be, if you do that, it'll tear a hole and it's time to Shut up, son. We're going to do this the American way. Today, there's not a man nor woman in here that shall stand alone. Not today. Today, we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today, we are canceling the apocalypse. Exactly, that guy. It was recorded as a science experiment set on determining answers to some of the mysteries in like the atmosphere and how physics works based on explosions in the atmosphere. That was how they framed it initially. But as an added bonus, it was also supposed to happen at, at a time and be bright enough to show that the U.S. was the most powerful nation in the world. So it was supposed to happen where Americans could look up into the night sky and see this happen. Okay. And and this it's is so much to process. I'm going to let you break it down for me before I start asking questions. The important, th the most important thing to note about this whole thing is that this happened right at the beginning of the Cold War. Okay. So, and it was the space race between Soviet Space Force and the United States, uh, NASA, I guess is what we call it. Um, and at this point, the Soviet Space Force was famously in the lead. In 1969, NASA sent out the Apollo, uh, yeah, yeah. So they sent out the Apollo Eleven, which was the the first manned spacecraft to land on the moon, and so that kind of pulled us ahead. But this was a lot of this was supposed to happen 
to show, hey, we are we are just as good at this, at this space thing as Russia. Yeah, I mean, when oh. we started, we were very far behind. Imagine like the the national terror around Sputnik, and I can you can see the the you can see the jump there, the the simplistic thinking of like commies are on their way to the moon, but they can't land on the moon if it doesn't exist anymore. And so it was. It was really interesting. I don't think the whole idea was to blow up the entire moon, but phrasing it like that at the beginning seemed more like eye-catching. It was bo- it was basically supposed to hit the moon really hard and blow up a big portion of it so we could see so we could see how stuff moved in space based on explosions like that. Okay, that that's and the a- reasoning for it. It just happened to be around a time where a ginormous flex would have been beneficial. Yeah. I mean, it would have been an insanely odd flex. But yeah, the project was canceled due to fear of public reaction. And this part's really interesting to me. A lot of the reason they were afraid of the public reaction is because nobody had ever militarized space at this point. Hmm. And so the reason that's so interesting is because it's kind of like uh, who will who will take the first step in this battle? Who's going to... Who's going to violently use this new technology that we have first? Because as soon as that happens, the other side is prepared to do the exact same thing. Hmm. But the whole the whole idea here is so interesting to me of how they decided, okay, yeah, we can't do this. You have any questions so far? Class? Well, it's just interesting to think of like that the public consciousness kind of became aware of this idea of space combat and that kind of created the culture from which star trek and star wars sprung from the 70s being such a golden age of sci-fi kind of makes sense when you think about how it's coming off the cold war and in the news you're hearing about this fight that's going on in space yeah it's pretty it's It's more conceptual at that point but still it's it's they're they're talking about things exploding in outer space, and it's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you say that because the interesting thing about this is America as a whole didn't know anything about this project until 2000. Oh, isn't that wild? Almost 45 years of mystery. I mean, mystery, but it was really just complete silence, huh? Yeah, it was 45 years of radio silence. This guy Leonard. Rifle, and I don't exactly know if that's how you say his name, but it wouldn't be a strictly confidential episode that I'm hosting that if I didn't say a name and then say I wasn't sure how to say it. So Leonard Rifle was the leader of the project in 1958 and revealed its existence in 2000. Like I said, almost 45 years later. And while he's detailed many different parts of the project, the United States government has never officially admitted their involvement in the project. Hmm. He was an American physicist at that time and uh, died uh, a couple years ago. So he, he swore was, some kind of vow of secrecy or what, whatever the um, whatever the non-disclosure agreement is on the much higher scale. And I guess in the year 2000 that expired and he was free to talk about it. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but he he gave a bunch of details about the project itself. And so all of these details come from him. So I guess there could be a case made saying this homie made the whole thing up, but nothing that I've read implies that this guy is not to be believed. He's different from people like the time cube guy and stuff like that, because he's very much a, uh, 
an educated man. He was at the, um, I think, the Indiana Institute of Technology for decades. What I want to understand better is when these secret government operations become public record and how that process works and what they are obligated to tell the public many, many years after the previous threat has been negated. You know, classified information from the CIA has like a time limit, right? And we we find out about it much, much later. And I wonder if that this was something that was true and there's a specific date where that information would be released to the public. Yeah, that's what's so interesting to me about shows like The X-Files, which talk about, and honestly, the best episodes are about stuff the government is hiding and stuff like Scully and Mulder find uh, that the government has covered up because they show so much, and obviously that shows fiction, but they show so much neat little details about what's going on that I just dive right in. And it, honestly, we could probably thank that show for giving me the idea for this show. It's sure. just that kind of that kind of aura of mystery is so attractive. Yeah. And I mean, they, they tried to train cats to be agents uh, pre-World War II, and that was classified and then later became Ned's declassified. And we know about that now. <laughs> So that that so that's kind of what I'm asking here is that if there's there a specific a, time frame that they have to follow where the the you said it was the Air Force that they would have to disclose this project. Yeah, or, so I don't know if I don't know if there's a a standard for that kind of public record the way there is for um, other stuff like the way all of the Mickey Mouse and stuff just became public domain. Right. Because the their copyright or whatever it is expired. I doubt there's stuff like that for government secrets. But I imagine that there's a protocol for once this thing, once this project has been dormant for a certain number of years, people are allowed to talk about it. Yeah. Maybe it's on but, an individual basis like that. Because good on this guy for keeping a secret for 50 years that's that juicy because he's... This guy's on a date, well, and she's like, oh, I just got my second chinchilla. And he's like, I just, we almost blew up the moon. But he can't even say that. Yeah, I th there's a stand-up comedian who has a bit where he talks about how the fir being friends with the first guy on the moon must be a nightmare. Oh, yes. Maybe that's where I'm stealing that joke from. Because every time somebody says, oh, yeah, well, I did this, he can go, oh, yeah, I walked on the moon. Right. You just, there's just no beating it. There's no beating that. But... It's crazy because this project was so intense and so secretive that there were bigger names even than Rifle who talked about it. Like Carl Sagan was involved in the project and carried the, the knowledge of the project to his grave. Wow. But never a word from him about it. Never a word from him about it. Um, but apparently this guy like produced records and stuff about it. So it's a proven thing. Just the United States has never officially admitted their involvement. Do you want to hear something even more interesting though? Of course. That's how, I, that's how I hook you. I tell you a good thing, then I tell you a better thing. It's a little bit more interesting if you learn the relationships between these three parties, Russia, America, and the moon, around this time, 1955 through 56, or through 1960. Like I said earlier, the Soviets were clearly winning, but one interesting, like a really interesting thing to note in 1957 was that that year American newspapers started reporting rumors that the Soviet Union was planning to detonate a bomb on the moon. Hmm. And nothing ever came of this 
but a year before the project actually A119 was initiated, America was publicizing that Russia was stating to do this exact same thing. So maybe that would be as, let me see, how can I phrase this? So there's a good chance that Russia was never any farther along in this process than we were, but we began our own plan to detonate a explosive on the moon as a retaliation to these rumors. Who that's thought of this of first? I'm, that's kind of what I'm thinking is that there's a very good chance that the that Russian and American propaganda is what instigated something like this. Is what got America to think, okay, maybe we need to do this first. Maybe we need to do this faster. Because Russia was planning to do, according to the American newspapers, Russia was planning to do it in celebration of a revolution they had done. Right, because there's really, I doubt there's very much data, very much scientific learning to be done from this. To, to be, you're not rewarded with a whole lot of data by some, exploding something on the moon. They want to do it as a celebration. Air Force kind of covered it up as like, we're trying to learn about the trajectory of objects in space when it blah, blah, blah. Really, it's just the spectacle of the thing. And the knowledge that one country or another has done it is a huge flex, for lack of a better term. It's like in my marketing class, we talked about the, the fact that no one really owns the moon and this theoretical idea that, say, Bud Light got a projector that was strong enough that they could project an image of their logo on the moon for the entire world to see. And whether or not that would be legal if it were, you know, theoretically possible to do. But that's the well, thing. That's that's why it was a hot button issue is because, like, we just kind of assume that everyone owns the moon. It's all of ours. So for one country in particular to come by and then put a crater in it, that's a statement. That's something that's so interesting about all of this space stuff is that there is historical precedent for the way people take countries and take land on Earth and colonize places and discover places and own places right right real estate and everything has precedent and it it may not it may differ nation to nation and government to government but on the moon and outside of our atmosphere kind of anything goes it's hard to come up with territory and determine who owns what right now with that but the the idea that blowing part of the moon up and digging in a little bit deeper to what is inside is actually not entirely useless because that's what they're trying to do with NASA's newest rover on Mars is the, the Opportunity rover. Hmm. Where it's trying... Oh, not Opportunity. What's the rover that had like the Twitter account? Insight. Curiosity was that one. Okay. So it's the Insight. And so the purpose of the Insight's rover is really, really interesting to me. Or it's, it's technically a lander because it doesn't move around on Mars. What it does is it lands on Mars and then digs straight into the ground because what they're looking for is water or water that could have been there before. That's Signs the ultimate that pay dirt on Mars is any, so, any proof of water that has existed or exists today. Right, because if they can find evidence of water, there can be reasons to believe that life could have been sustained there at some point or could sustain there in the future. And so that could be in the, in the 50s, that would make sense that they could be looking for that in the moon as well by blowing up a, a portion of the surface so they could dig a little bit deeper. Does that make sense? Yeah, actually. That's a good point. But the, 
one of the things that's so much more interesting to me because most of this I got from the Wikipedia article about Project A119 beforehand and checked some sources. I found the exclusive interview with Rifle from The Guardian in 2000 when he was just coming forward with the information. And this quote stuck out to me. It was clear the main aim of the proposed detonation was a PR experiment and a show of one-upmanship. The Air Force wanted a mushroom cloud so large it would be visible on Earth. The U.S. was lagging behind in the space race. So all of this arguing and figuring out, okay, what could the science be behind all this? It's hilarious to me that this extravagant mission was America's best strategy for winning history's biggest pissing contest. <laughs> and that's the nice way to put it. But yeah, that's Project A119. And it's there's so much about it on the internet that you can just dive right in and learn way more. But it's really interesting, and I'm going to keep reading about it beyond what I did today. Cool. And then, of course, as listeners of Truth and Confidential, we all know the truth. They did fire a massive rocket at the moon, and it just went straight through the hologram and kept traveling and is still flying through space today. Well, that's all I got for Project A119. You want to tell people what they can learn about our musical contributor? Yes, our musical contribution for our theme song is Threadbare off the album Burden of Proof. Glenn Merle is the artist. He graciously lets us use that track week after week. And you can get that on Spotify, iTunes, any place you stream music, you can probably listen to it there, or glimrollmusic.com. Thanks to him, as always. And to be honest, I listened to his music again for the first time in a couple couple days today. It still super slaps. That whole album is so good. And I, I hear tell from him that he is working on new music actively. He and his wife just had a baby, but they are, he is... A hard worker. But he's finally he on to more to important things. And he's working on his next album. <laughs> so uh, if you want to follow us on any of our social media, we have an Instagram at Strictly Confidential Show and a Twitter at S Confident Show. And if you heard that, that was my dog. But our social media is a good way to see what episodes are coming. If you aren't following us, then um, I would give us a follow. But that way, we're, we post pretty much every episode to say, hey, this is what's up here. This is what we're talking about. If we have a guest, we'll link that guest so you can follow them as well. It's just a a good way to keep track of us because we know social media is the app. Social media apps are the apps people use the most. And it's a lot easier to see what's going on there if we put it there. And, and we then, love yeah. having guests on the show. We love doing interviews. They make us seem smarter than we really are because we bring on experts who know what they're talking about. So if you have something you're passionate about, we'd love to have you on the show. Hit us up. And if you like the show, tell your best friend that they should listen to it too because you guys have similar tastes. Whether or not those are good tastes is up for debate, but they're the same. So they probably like this. And honestly, if you want to reach out with any questions or concerns or jokes or links or if you have a friend that you want us to reach out to that we can interview or if you want to be interviewed... All of our contact information boils down to our email address because reasons, I guess. I don't know. I, I mean, <laughs> Can't argue with that. I mean, when, when Jeff Bezos created the email address, it just worked and people decided to, to do it. Uh, yeah. And so our email address is strictlyconfidentialshow at gmail.com. Uh, yeah. I think that's all I got. That's all we do, man. Well, I've been Jackson. And I've been Asher. And this has been Strictly Confidential. As always, see you soon, Space Cowboy. Bye.
Oh, like the anime. 